God. God is good. He really is wonderful. He is wonderful. And it's so good to be together again in His presence, singing His praises, hallelujah, exalting the name of Jesus. I tell you, there's a lot of stuff happening in our world, as you well know, but let's not exalt the news. Let's not exalt all of the other things that our world and the media is exalting. There is only one name to exalt, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. He has been given the name that is above every other name. And Paul the Apostle said this, fixing, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I'm telling you, you can fix your eyes on a lot of things in this world, but I tell you, in this time of trouble, there is one admonition and one command from the Word of God that I would advise you to uphold in your life, and it is this, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You do that, you'll find you'll have joy. You do that, you'll find that you'll have life. You do that, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of great sorrow that the Bible tells us will come upon this world, you'll have great peace and great joy. Hallelujah. Fix your eyes on Him in a shifting world. Fix your eyes on Him in the mass of bad news, in the mass of bad media. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, this morning we're still in this series of messages, walking through the Gospel of John, and today we're going to be talking about how believing precedes seeing. Believing precedes seeing. That's the title of our message today, Believing Precedes Seeing. And we're going to look at the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. And this man, when you read the beginning of that chapter, you see that he was sitting helplessly begging outside of the temple. And as people passed him, they looked down on this man because they assumed that his blindness was because of some sin that he'd committed or, become, or because of some sin that his parents had committed. But that's not how Jesus saw this man when He saw him on that day that John remembers in John chapter 9. When Jesus saw this blind man sat outside of the temple, He saw a man that was chosen as a vessel for God's glory, one through whom His light would shine in this dark world. Andrew Carnegie, the great industrialist who was a great believer in people, was once asked, how are great men and women made? And he responded in the most 
amazing way, I think, by saying, great men and women are made much like gold is mined. Several tons of dirt has to be removed from the mine in order to extract one ounce of gold. But you don't go into the mine looking for the dirt. You go into the mine looking for the gold. And that is how great men and women are made. Look for the gold, he said, not for the dirt. Isn't that such a great outlook to have about people? Isn't that such a great outlook to have when it comes to blessing others and thinking the best about them? Look for the gold in people's lives, not for the dirt. And that's how Jesus saw this man on this day, not as a reject to pass by, but as a, a life to hold God's glory. Thousands would have passed that man day after day just looking at the dirt. That's how the disciples approached him when they questioned Jesus about this man's plight of life. Was it him who sinned, Lord, or was it his parents? Everybody looked at the dirt in this man's life. That's how they saw him. But not Jesus. Jesus looked for the gold. He looked at a life ready to be changed. He looked at a life that was ready to house God's glory. And that's how He sees our lives too. Aren't you glad that we serve a Savior that doesn't look for the dirt in your life? Doesn't look at the mass of history that we have. He looks at your life as precious gold, ready to receive and to hold the greatest glory of God in Him. And from this man's experience, we're going to see that he moved through four stages of trust and faith in order for his miracle to come about. That's what we're going to look at this morning, to encourage our hearts so that we too can be open to receive God's glory in our lives, so that we can also be open to receive God's touch in our hearts. This man, in order to receive a touch from Jesus, moves through four very simple stages of trust and faith so that he could receive the glory of God in his life in the most remarkable way. Let's look at them. Firstly, this, man, this blind man had to accept Jesus's way. Accept Jesus's way. You read John chapter 9, and you see that Jesus just got down by this poor blind man, sat by him maybe, and what's noticeable and striking when you read the chapter is that Jesus doesn't introduce himself to the man. 
No words of introduction are exchanged. Nor does Jesus explain what he's going to do in order to help this man. He just gets down besides him. No explanation, no introduction. Jesus just spat on the ground, made some mud, paste, and then after making this mud paste, he spreads it over the man's eyes. Spreads that mud that he's made from his spittle in the ground in that blind man's eyes. And he doesn't explain what he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing. Let me read it to you. Just one verse that John records for us in John chapter 9. Read it together. Verse 6, it says this, Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. I mean, what kind of method is this? You can imagine the disciples scratching their heads. I mean, what would you think if you'd have been there? What conclusion would you have come to? What kind of madness is going on here? What method is he using now? And to any onlooker, seeing Jesus' actions they would have concluded that this is just crazy. This is bizarre. This is absurd and certainly questionable. Yet, this man, this blind man, accepts Jesus spreading that spitty paste on his eyes. He accepts it. He doesn't reject it. This blind man accepts Jesus' way without knowing what he was doing. He allows Jesus to touch his eyes and spread mud on them. Now, think about this for a moment. If you're blind, just think it, think about it in this way. If you're blind, wouldn't someone spreading mud on your eyes make your problem bigger? How would spreading mud on a blind man's eyes alleviate or eradicate his problem? It wouldn't. It would seem to intensify it. It would seem as if it's the most cruel thing to do. Spit on the ground, make some muddy paste, and then spread it on a blind man's eyes. Oh, how incompassionate of you, Jesus, to do such a horrible thing. But this man doesn't object. 
Because though he couldn't see, he sensed something in the touch. The touch of this man's hand was different. He doesn't protest. He doesn't object. Silently, quietly, patiently, he accepts Jesus' way. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Keep that picture in your mind of this man not questioning Jesus, of this man not objecting to Jesus' questionable methods. Keep it before your mind for a moment. How could this possibly apply to our lives? How could it apply to us? What's the meaning? What's the message from that moment of Jesus spreading mud in this man's eyes? What is it? When I, when I sat at home this week, and I looked at it, and I thought, I can't understand what you're trying to say. Why would you spread mud in a man's eyes? What are you trying to say here to us? Is it just something bizarre, something crazy, something out of the norm, so that people would notice you? What is it? Why did you do it? Why did you spit in the ground and make a muddy paste in your hand and spread it on a man's eyes? What is it that you're trying to say? And I believe the Holy Spirit. I had to wait, man, all the way till last night to find out. I labored with it in my mind, in my spirit, and I couldn't understand it for the life of me. But he showed me in a very simple way how it might apply. This isn't just the only application from this moment where Jesus spread mud in this man's eyes, but just one, one way in which it could apply to our lives. And he applied it to my life, certainly, as I thought back on times where he's met me. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've been hurt by someone? When their words have cut you down? When their actions have seemed so strange? And they've cut across your life and wounded you and left you, not knowing what to do, what to say, or how to respond. You've been hurt, and you don't want to forgive, and you don't want to forget. I think every one of us in this room this morning, if you thought back, just over your life, there would have been points in your life where even just someone has come and hurt you, wounded you, and you've found it hard to deal with, hard to respond to, 
not knowing where to go or what to do. You don't want to forgive, and you don't want to forget. And it's almost like your life goes on pause. It's almost like that moment of impact where that person or people hurt you, brought the joy of your life to a sudden end. You can't think about anything else other than them now because it's all-consuming, all-encompassing. And in a place of forgiveness, that's where resentment sets in. And as resentment sets in, bitterness comes on its back, and then you're left helpless, not knowing what to do. But, but, because God is faithful, because God is good, He comes to us in the power of His Holy Spirit, and He speaks His Word to us. He speaks God's Word. And what is His Word? Well, it's a word of forgiveness. He comes to you, and privately, quietly, gently, He deals with your heart. And the very issue that's holding you back, He touches. You want to hide it. You want to ignore that it's there. You want to act as if it doesn't exist, but He goes for that root. He goes for that issue quietly and privately with you, and He says, you need to forgive. You need to forgive that, brother. You need to forgive that, that sister, that person that's caused hurt, that person that's caused pain in your life. And that guidance, when first given by the Holy Spirit, can seem as ridiculous as mud being used to heal a blind man's eyes. That's how it applies. That word, that light, that lifeline of healing out of that pit of unforgiveness can seem initially the moment that the Holy Spirit speaks it to you. It can seem as ridiculous as mud being spread in a blind man's eyes because that direction of God's Word is way out of line with your thinking, and it doesn't make sense. It just seems to make your problem bigger. It just seems to make the issue more intense. I remember years ago now, on one occasion, when somebody spoke some very cruel words against me, and also their actions were not good, and it hurt and my mind struggled with thoughts as to what to do. And my feelings and my emotions wanted to respond with anger that I felt was justified. And then, before I did any of that, I said, Holy Spirit, with a heavy heart, with a burdened mind, not knowing what to do. And when you don't know what to do, there's only one person that you can go to. That's the Holy Spirit. 
I said, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you tell me what to do with these feelings, with these thoughts that are all consuming? Would you tell me, Holy Spirit, please? Do you know what? I didn't have to wait long for the answer. It came immediately. Immediately. He said, wash their feet, son. Wash their feet? Do you mean wash their feet? That was not an answer that I was expecting. That answer was as crazy as mud being spread in a blind man's eyes expecting him to see. Wash their feet. That's not the answer out of this situation. What about all that's been said? What about the actions that have been taken? Wash their feet. And then I realized, I've got to accept His way. I've got to go with what He says. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit was speaking. So I said this, and this is all I could say. I said, Holy Spirit, I cannot wash their feet. But if you will help me, I will do it. As soon as I said that, instantaneously, something happened on the inside. I cannot tell you what it was. I can't put it down on paper as to what changed in my heart, but something happened. It was like the light went on, and suddenly, suddenly, in moments, I could pray for that person with unconditional love. I could think the best thoughts about their life. I could actually speak well of them. I hadn't, speak, I hadn't spoken anything else anyway, any, anything other than that, anything other than good anyway, but actually mean it with all of my heart because I accepted God's way above my own. Today, maybe the Holy Spirit is guiding you and leading you to a place of forgiveness over an issue that's causing you pain, over an issue or a, a challenge that you've been held by for far too long. And up until now, His Word of forgiveness to you has seemed like mud. No, allow Him to apply that Word in your life. And that, 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 that very Word that seems so ridiculous, that very Word that seems so repulsive in many ways, will be the means of you seeing, or the means for your sight to be restored. Wash their feet. Pray for them. Bless them in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy, Holy Spirit.
in 2 Kings, and we'll come back to John 9 in a moment, but just to really establish this point here of accepting Jesus' way above our own. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story about a man called Naaman, and Naaman was a general over the king of Aram's armies, and he was, he, he was a very powerful man. He was, a, he, he was uh, prosperous in every way. He had, he had influence over people, and he was a man of great position right at the top of the kingdom. But Naaman had one problem. He was a leper. He had power. He had prestige. He, he was prosperous. He was influential. He was right at the top, but he had one problem that lay outside of his power to control leprosy. Under all the armor, under all of the, uh, of, of the great appearance of his prestige, of his power, of his influence, of his prosperity, under it all, he was leprous, completely covered with that disease. Well, there was a young Israelite girl who was a, who was a slave girl in his house. And this young girl saw that her master, Naaman, was leprous. She saw behind all of the great appearance and all of the great facade, and she saw that the man had an issue that he couldn't control that was bigger than his power to contend with. And she said to her master's wife, Naaman should go to Israel. The Lord is there, the Lord who heals. Well, as soon as Naaman heard this, his hopes of being healed were alive in his heart. He makes a trip to Israel, and cutting a long story short, he stops outside of Elisha's house. He turns up with all of his entourage. He turns up in his chariot. He turns up fully dressed to impress. But the man's a leper, and he needs God. What happens? Elijah sends his servant to the door. Elisha, sorry, sends his servant to the door. He can't come down. He's too busy in his bedroom with God. And even though there's an important man outside, he's talking and having counsel with the Lord in his bedroom. So he sends down his servant to see this great, impressive general from Aram. And the order... The Word of God is clear. You want to be healed? Go and wash in the River Jordan. Dip there seven times. That's the end of the Word. Finito. Naaman, on hearing this, in front of all of that impressive entourage that were with him, is incensed and enraged. What's happening? The Word of God is like mud. It's repulsive, obnoxious, rude, offensive to his pride. And he objects. He said, I'm River Jordan. 
The rivers in Israel are filthy. Why couldn't he say to go and dip in the rivers of Damascus? They're clean rivers. Why do I have to dip seven times in the dirty rivers of Israel? And anyway, if he's a prophet of God, and this is what he says, why couldn't he come out of his house and wave his hand over me and say, the Lord heals you? You had him back then. Elisha, now this is a bit of license and liberty on my side. Elisha's probably in bed now snoring. He's having a good rest, Elisha. Can't be bothered with the commotion outside, the pride and the ignorance. And No, he's given him the word. Your turn now, bro. You can either accept it or reject it. Your turn. Over to you. You have the word of God. It can either remain mud to you, offensive, ridiculous, and repulsive, or you can, you can actually work that mud into your life and see the wonder of it. Turn your mind. Change it. Look at it differently. Well, Naaman had some, some servants with him who were wiser than he was. And they turned to their master and they said, Master, if the prophet had have asked you to, to do something great and hard and notable, you would have done it with all of your strength. Why not take the prophet at his word? Just go and do what he's told you to do. Just dip in the river seven times. See, God will still heal you with all of your arguments, with all of your pride, with, with all of your objections. He doesn't care about the emotion that his word kicks up. If you'll apply faith and just go ahead and do it, even if you don't like what you've got to do, you'll get healed. Yeah, well, he, he sees reason. And he lets go of his pride. He takes his armor off. There he is in his naked figure, white with that disease, leprous from head to foot. And he dips one time, two time, three time, four time, five times, six times. The leprosy's still there, as white as ever. But on the seventh time, he comes up out of the water. And the Bible says his skin was restored like that of a baby. The word that was mud, the word that was repulsive, the word that seemed so ridiculous and so unachievable was the word that healed him and saved him and made him whole. He goes back to Elijah, Elisha, sorry, a different man, praising the God of Israel declaring that there was no other God in all of the earth other than the Lord of heaven. He accepted. He accepted the word of God. Just like this blind man didn't reject Jesus' way, 
He accepted it and embraced it. So Naaman embraced the word of God, accepted it, and saw the miraculous power of God in his life. Now after this blind man, let's come back to John 9. After this blind man accepts Jesus' way, the next step he takes is to obey Jesus' word. You see it all there. These are just simple points. And they interlock and marry and overlap in different ways. After he accepts Jesus' way, he obeys Jesus' word. And that's the second point to be made here. After Jesus put mud in this man's eyes, he says to him in verse 7 of John 9, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And with childlike faith, this blind man simply gets up, still blind, to do what he's been told by Jesus. He couldn't walk like everybody else. That's obvious. He went bumping and stumbling and bumbling along his way to the pool, probably asking people every few steps if he was going in the right way. There must have been many reasons for this man to give up along the way. There must have been many doubts that were afflicting his mind and challenging him on his actions, but he believed, and he walked blind to that pool, believing and obeying and acting on the word that he had received. The temple from where he went was situated in the center of Jerusalem, but the pool of Siloam, where Jesus told him to go, meant him leaving where he was. And from where he went to where he was sent would mean walking blind through a bustling city, through narrow streets filled with people and obstacles of every kind. You know, Jesus doesn't just make everything easy. He's not a magic wand to wave over our circumstances, and you know this. You know this. He's not a magic wand to wave over our circumstances to say, hey, presto, you've got a wonderful life now, and everything looks perfect. No. Sometimes obeying His Word will bring greater challenge. It will seem to obey His Word. It will seem as if it's harder. Stretch, stretching you beyond your capacity. This man was stretched. Jesus didn't give this man the easy option. Told him to get up and go to the pool now. But I got mud in my eyes. That's right. You got mud in your eyes. Go. Wash in the pool. And do you know what? Jesus didn't even say he would get healed when he got there. So with mud in his blind eyes, he's told to go up, to, to get up and go to the pool and have a wash. But he wasn't guaranteed of any outcome. There was no promise of healing. Blind man in his simplicity probably thought, well, well, I have got to go and wash now because I got a dirty face. 
No guarantee of healing. I think it's a fantastic picture of trust and faith and courage and determination to obey Jesus' word above all other things. Goes bumping and stumbling and bumbling through the streets of Jerusalem all to get to this pool. And then the moment comes when he finally got to the pool of Siloam probably feeling his way around to get to the water's edge. He cups his hands together and he washes his face. He washes his eyes. And suddenly, I mean, how does this work? How does this operate? Suddenly, the guy can see. The blind man receives his sight for the first time in his life, and verse 7 says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. What a moment that must have been. I would have loved to have seen that first moment when this man opened his eyes for the first time. And now he could see all around him, looked up to the heavens and saw the glory of God in the sky, looked around the streets that he once struggled on. Now, for the first time, he's walking down, not knocking into anybody or struggling to, to find his way, wandering over the other side in the wrong direction against the flow of traffic of people in that busy city. Now his eyes are open for the first time. He's not profusely apologizing to anybody now for bumping into them or taking a wrong turn. Now, he's been given power over his own life because Jesus has given him sight. He walks with dignity and ease as his eyes are wide open. Isn't this a beautiful picture that symbolizes what Jesus has done in our hearts? It symbolizes what Jesus has done in our lives as the eyes of our heart and our understanding have been opened and enlightened to see Him. What a difference He makes. What a difference He's made in all of our lives to all of our walk as we follow Him. We read last week, if you remember from John chapter 12 verse 46, let me remind you of Jesus' words again here in this chapter. Jesus said this, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in darkness. And in a very literal sense, this had occurred in this man's life. He had placed his trust and his faith in Jesus. He had accepted Jesus' way. He had obeyed Jesus' word. And now he was no longer walking in darkness. His eyes were open. He was no longer blind. He had control and power over his own life because Jesus had given him sight. And this symbolizes the miracle of the new birth in all of our lives. We are no longer in darkness. We no longer stumble and walk about blind. Our eyes are open. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 
The light makes all things visible. We are able to see into all things and avoid things that would hinder our lives and walk towards things that would glorify God and call us deeper to live for Jesus. His eyes were open. His eyes could see. Jesus, the light of the world, had literally opened His eyes miraculously, and now He was walking with dignity. Now, what we see happening next after this man had accepted Jesus' way and obeyed Jesus' word is that he went to the temple to be a witness of God's goodness. And that's the third point that we're going to make about this miracle that worked in this man's life. He was a witness to God's goodness. Now, sadly, if you read John chapter 8, you'll see that Jesus had just caused a huge ruckus in the temple. He had revealed Himself as God. And in, in that environment, they deemed that as blasphemy. Everybody in the temple, they had been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus said directly to them that He was the water of life. And not only was He the water of life, but He was the light of the world. And in saying that, there was a huge explosion in that, in that religious temple, and they began, you can read it in John chapter 8, to pick up stones, to stone Jesus. Can you believe it? Jesus is in the temple. The Lord God of heaven and earth is in the temple. And those religious Jews pick up stones in hatred against Christ Jesus to stone Him. Jesus casually walks out. He's not in a rush. He's not trying to hold on to His life. He walks out of the temple. He sees this blind man in John chapter 9. He's not running away from them, their stones or their threats, and He heals him there on the spot. He's not in a rush. Jesus gets kicked out of the temple and the funny thing was, this man goes back into the hornet's nest to declare God's goodness. He goes in, oh my goodness, it's a ticking time bomb. It really is. The Pharisees go for his throat. They begin to question this miracle. They begin to assassinate this man's character. They assassinate Jesus' character. They go after his parents, calling them up to validate that, firstly, he's their son, and then to validate that he was born blind, all to cast dispersion on the work of our Lord Jesus, because he had worked on the Sabbath. And he worked on the Sabbath because he is Lord of the Sabbath. And he healed the man, and now the man is declaring the goodness of God in the midst of that dark temple, declaring the goodness of God in the face of all of that hatred. 
And they're throwing theological question after, uh, at him, after trying to bring him down. Who is this Jesus? Who is this one that healed you? How did he heal you? How did he heal you? Heal you? And the man just very simply replied in John 9, verse 25. He said this. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't have any answers for all of your theological questions. I don't have a response for all of your religious arguments. I don't know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I once lived in darkness, but I don't have to go there anymore. I now live in the light. This man knew what Jesus had done, and he wasn't afraid to declare it. He knew who Jesus was, and his heart was enraptured by his goodness. And he, even amidst of that religious darkness in that temple, he sang out praises to God fearlessly. This boldness of this man should encourage all of our hearts. It really should. Because we have the same simple confession. Amidst all of the taunts of the enemy, amidst all of the arguments within our world, our confession is the same as this blind man. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the testimony of your life. That's the testimony of Jesus being the light of your life. After this man gets thrown out of the temple and rejected, the next man he meets is Jesus. Hallelujah. It doesn't matter who rejects you. It doesn't matter who insults you. It doesn't matter who tries to assassinate your character or question your integrity or call you a sinner and a liar. After it all, you'll find a friend that never fails. After it all, you will find a brother or, a, or, or one who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus finds this rejected man. Jesus finds this man who was kicked out of the temple because Jesus was kicked out of the temple, and he goes to him, and he looks after him, and Jesus speaks to him. What would you rather have? An audience and a position amidst the religious elite, or a one-to-one -one audience with Jesus Christ? I tell you who I'd rather have an audience with. Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, and we'll, we'll conclude in a minute how this man worshipped Jesus as his Lord. He worshipped him as his Lord. The miracle 
of opening this blind man's eyes ended in an even greater miracle of his heart being opened, of his understanding, seeing Jesus. You read John chapter 9, and you see how those religious Pharisees interrogated this man and assaulted him with their arguments and their anger. You see how this man, how the eyes of his heart begins to open. You can read it in your own time. Because when he was first questioned about what had happened, he said, the man they called Jesus healed me. The man they called Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He just heard about Him. And then, a little later on in the interrogation, before those Pharisees, He calls Jesus a prophet. He doesn't know anything about theology, and He doesn't know anything about prophets. But what's happening, His eyes are beginning to open inside now. He it's the man they call Jesus, but now I, I think he's a prophet. And then on beyond there, as they interrogate him more, and he stands for Christ, his convictions become stronger, and he tells them, well, he's from God. So he's moved from being the man called Jesus, moved from just being a prophet, to now being from God, and that's when he got kicked out. But when Jesus found him, now this was the greatest moment of revelation where his eyes would fully open, the eyes of his heart and understanding, where he would see Jesus as Lord. John 9, verse 35 through to verse 38 says this, Jesus heard that he had been that he had, that they had, sorry, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Hallelujah. He worshipped him. I'm going to ask the mus musicians to come. We're going to close by praying in just a few moments. Have you received God's word this morning? He worshipped him. John remembers that man from when they first met him, his eyes blind, and then through the stages he went as he accepted Jesus' way, as he obeyed Jesus' word, as he declared the goodness of God in his life and how now finally he worships him as Lord. Not only now was his physical eyesight restored, 
that the eyes of his understanding, the eyes of his heart were enlightened to know Christ. And he worships him. And that word worship is the most intimate of words that's found in the Bible. When we worship God, the, the, the connection is so deep, the connection is so intimate that it means to kiss profusely. It means to lean towards and embrace. And John wasn't saying that this man kissed Jesus profusely. He wasn't saying that. But what he was pointing to was that the devotion and the intimacy and the love of discovering finally who Jesus was, declaring Him to be His Lord was so intimate that John said, He's worshiping. Look, He is worshiping. Look at the connection. Look at the enlightenment. Look now at the wholeness, not just of having His eyes restored, His sight restored from being blind from birth, but now His heart can see as we see. The man worships Jesus. Our blind eyes have been opened. We no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is our light in our world, so that, as He said, so that we will never walk in darkness. Never, ever walk in darkness. And we worship Him as our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You today for Your Word to us. Lord, we ask You that we would accept Your Word above our own way. Lord, I pray as we accept your word above our own way, I pray that we would obey it above our own will. And as we see the power of your word at work in our lives, we would praise you for your goodness. We would thank you and declare in our world where we are of your wondrous, wondrous healing life in our lives. And all of this to arouse and erupt a deeper place of worship, worshiping you for your goodness, worshiping you because we are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We've been translated and taken out of that kingdom and placed into the kingdom of light. We thank you for it. We praise you for it as God's people. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Hallelujah. We're going to ready ourselves. That's right. That's right, Humphrey. Just play those keys. 
We give you praise. Just play those keys. Hallelujah. Holy Ghost, move in this place. Holy Spirit, we give you praise in this place. Have your way. Do your work in our lives. We give you praise. We honor you. We worship you. We reverence you, your holy presence. We thank you that as we accept your way, as we obey your word, as we declare your goodness, as we worship you as Lord, your will will be done in our lives. Your kingdom will come on earth where we are as it is in heaven. 